G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts and Stitcher, so no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, we'll be following up from our previous interviews in relation to research from the Northern Symposium, and as you know, that was held last week, so we thought we'd bring back a couple more to do some more interviews and then do a bit of a wrap-up of how the event went. So today I would like to introduce you first to Christina Braybrook, who is doing a Master of Science in Geography and Planning under the supervision of Dr. Paul Traits and Dr. Neil Scott. Welcome to Grad Chat, Christina. Hi, thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I think what we'll do, let's get straight into your research first and we can ask you about what your thoughts were the symposium after. Okay, perfect. Um, And that I think uh, that'll give us a bit of a rounding out of the whole series that we've done on the Northern Symposium. So your research topic is modelling growing season net CO2 exchange for high Arctic mesic tundra using high resolution remote sensing data, or as I like to call it, using some of the work words in your synopsis, <laughs> examining tundra vegetation response to climate warming over time. Yes, so it is a mouthful and I'll try my best to teach it down. So yeah, essentially I'm going to be looking at how Arctic vegetation is changing in terms of its ability to be its carbon dynamics. So essentially vegetation uptakes CO2 right. through photosynthesis, which yes. we're all aware from high school biology. High school biology, <laughs> yeah, even I remember that part. Yeah, so they uptake CO2 through photosynthesis and they also respire. So they right. release CO2 to the atmosphere. So with warming temperatures in the Arctic, how those two processes are changing and essentially which one is bigger whether more carbon is going into the more carbon dioxide is going into the ecosystem or is more coming out okay so more going into the ground yeah and then what's been expired out exactly yeah it's the expired out that creates the greenhouse gases exactly yeah so we all kind of know through reading headlines these days that co2 is one of the fastest growing greenhouse gases in our atmosphere and that's with anthropogenic effects of fossil fuels burning and arctic vegetation and vegetation in general has the ability to offset those atmospheric co2 content so through photosynthesis they're uptaking it also with warming and a whole other suite of ecosystem changes that we're seeing in the arctic respiration is also on the rise so with time which one is bigger whether so this is so you're talking about vegetation above the ground not that's currently hidden within the permafrost so there is below ground um, biomass so roots for example which also oh, okay yep. yeah and they don't have photosynthesizing properties but they all they respire so and that's a really good point that you bring up which my research won't focus too much on but there is attempts to look at how much the below ground biomass contributes to respiration. It's obviously hard as it's below ground, we don't Mm -hmm. see it and our monitoring processes aren't, we haven't developed them 
to sort of look at those processes. But yeah, there is. So you're looking on. at things at the, above ground, like little bushes and tiny little plants that are stuck amongst the rocks and soils and stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. So and we are in the high Arctic. So at the Cape Bounty Arctic Watershed Observatory, which previous talks that you've students you've discussed with are also doing research up there. So it's a high Arctic site. So um, not a lot of high shrubs. It's mostly graminoids and mosses and small little things. But they (laughs) graminoids. I love that word. But they make a big difference. You know, you look on the ground and you say how how could cumulatively these plants make a difference? But they are impacting the ecosystem. So even so, you're also talking about little lichens and things that are yeah. on rocks. Yeah. So, so. That, is that a gramoid, whatever you just call yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> a form of such. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh God, she's getting good. <laughs> she's getting really good. Okay. So with that in mind, then million dollar question: mm-hmm. Why is it important to monitor vegetation changes in the Arctic? So I kind of touched on briefly what I'm going to be looking at in terms of the landscape carbon budgets that plants contribute to. So they have the ability, as I said, to offset carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. They also have the ability to contribute to it. And Mm -hmm. that's also with um, soil respiration and heterotrophic respiration, which is little microbes in the soil. Oh, they're eating the carbon that's being released from the permafrost and and then expelling. they respire CO2 as well. So, and I believe you talked to Jacqueline Hung. She's doing her PhD and she's looking at more soil stuff. I'm working on plants. So, but in that we have people in our department looking at and in biology also for vegetation and plants in the Arctic contribute to habitat for birds and they also we have a PhD looking at caribou migration and how shrubs in the Arctic impact that so it's kind of an endless question that there's there's a lot that vegetation but it's nice that with all the research that's going on there you're looking above ground below ground what happens to the ground what happens as you said the various species who live off the land Mm. Um, so it's great that this is a really big collaborative effort of the research that's going on there so it's fascinating when people say no nothing's happening there is no climate change because clearly there is with all the different research that's going on yeah it's kind of mind-blowing I think what my day-to-day consists of and the fact that there is still conversations like that it's inevitable that change is occurring and for people that haven't been, I was I had the fortunate opportunity in my undergrad to go to the north to conduct right, research right. there. I was in the Northwest Territories, and your conception of what the Arctic is, I think, if you haven't been, is you know barren landscapes. There's not a lot going on, but it's so dynamic, and these interconnected ecosystems are so complex mm-hmm. that it's hard. And I think at the master's level too, um, to kind of tease out little processes without considering the bigger picture. It's a really difficult task. Right, right. Yeah, Yeah, you've got to take the whole into consideration. Yeah. Is that why after your fourth year honours, you did that at the University of Calgary? Yeah. Yes. Is that what got you hooked into finding out more about what's going on in the north? Yeah, definitely. It was a whole, it was, there was a lot of factors, obviously, that got me hooked. But yeah, I mean, flying in helicopters every day made it kind of a a cool thing. Other things as well. Yeah, but I think just having the opportunity to create something in the form of a thesis or in a written work that you can be like, okay, this is quantifying what's going on. Right. In like, that is approachable. So I think that that is kind of what got me hooked. And being being Canadian, being from Canada, I looking into master's programs, I was like, how can I make a difference in Canada? Right, and right. 
with, I mean, headlines especially coming out these days on change in the Arctic, it was it was a simple decision that this is where I want to focus. It's quite terrifying what's going on. It then. is. So, so what is unique about your approach to modelling carbon dioxide exchange compared to previous research? So I'll tease it down to kind of what specifically I'm doing. So I use the word flux tower, which is essentially a physical tower that we set up on the landscape. Oh, right, right. It's about the size of a very tall person. Right. Just, well, about eight. That essentially just measures concentration of CO2 based on wind speed. So let's say there's a net movement of wind down. Right. With a specific CO2 concentration. We assume that that means that CO2 is going into the ecosystem, that plants are uptaking it. Okay. Conversely, if we take a measurement of CO2 in a net upward movement based on wind speed and direction, that means that CO2 is being respired from the, atmos- from the ecosystem into the atmosphere. Right. So when I say flux tower, that's what I mean. So we're looking at these measurements and they are at an extremely high frequency like we are measuring this every 10 seconds 15 seconds 30 seconds we can vary it yeah very high so previous approaches to attempting to model these fluxes using remote sensing have used a single satellite image for the entire growing season wow so really really high up above so that's not getting down to the nitty-gritty yeah so what that essentially means is we are taking one moment in time just taking a picture let's say of extremely high variability in an ecosystem. Right, right. So attempting to kind of put those two together has been, um, there's been successes depending on variability of fluxes in ecosystems, but it's hard. So what I'm attempting to do is use a drone or an unmanned aerial vehicle, as we like to call them technically, but to up the frequency of imagery acquisition to match that of these fluxes to see if more pictures essentially will be able to tell a better story. So but the pictures though are looking at once again the concentration levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Yeah it's essentially looking at whether in that time that we are taking this picture are is more CO2 going into the ground or is more CO2 coming out of the ground and that's done by statistical methods that I won't get into right now. Um, (laughs) Yeah I mean I don't even fully understand that myself that's a challenge of mine but yeah essentially looking at whether it's going in or whether it's going out. So so you're taking two measurements then, one from the flux tower yeah. and one from your little drone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. And through applications that we use, so they're called vegetation indices, essentially. So vegetation is highly reflected in near-infrared. That's not part of our visible spectrum that humans can see, but they're highly reflective and they absorb a lot of visible light, which is why plants look green when we look at them. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah. so that in itself, we can create a little equation on that, and we can create these images that highly identify vegetation on a landscape. Right, right. Looking at the near-infrared reflection. Okay. Yeah, whereas soil, for example, like is highly absorbed. uh, Near-infrared is highly absorbed in water and soil, so we can see kind of a difference on the landscape of where soil is, where vegetation is, where water is. So did you... I mean, you're only doing a master's, that's only two years. So have you got data from before or is this all new data? Yeah, so I was very fortunate to come onto this particular project that this tower has been operational for almost 10 years. So yeah, we have 10 years worth of data um, at this particular vegetated music tundra site Mm -hmm. that will be within the scope of my research attempts. Of course, 
changes over time and I am limited by two years, hopefully, knock but on wood. But you can still sort of see what happened 10 years ago to what's happening now. Yeah, exactly. So looking big differences. Yeah, looking at intra-annual variability, so looking at within a single growing season versus interannual. so looking between growing seasons. So, so when you're not up there in the summer, mm-hmm. uh, is this flux tower still taking readings? No. Or is we, it only during the period you're there? It's during the period that not specifically me, but when people are at Cape Bounty. So I will be up there in July and August, but growing season starts at around the beginning of June. So with the help of people that are going up earlier, they're going to get the flux tower set up for the season and we'll be able to monitor it. Monitor it from that. So so what are the anticipated outcomes of your research? That's a big question. I think, (laughs) uh, as we said, you know, a master's program is only two years and I know I'm not out to solve the world's problems in two years, but I think where my research research is situated is contributing to a better understanding of how to model these landscapes. And with the use of unmanned aerial vehicles or more in situ work, we can better understand the scale at which we need to monitor these that we can then cross apply to other ecosystems. So I'm going to ask you one more question. And Maybe I should leave this right to the end. But with all the work that you guys are doing up there, are you looking at you know, greenhouse gas effect and all that sort of thing. But a lot of that's been up there is from natural vegetation with the expiration, okay, with the, the CO2 that mm-hmm. they're expiring, whether it's coming from the plants or whether it's coming from the ground, you know, the, the warming of the, the permafrost or this sort of thing. So it's all very well us doing research up there to see what's happening up there. But our biggest issue is really, or maybe not, the f- burning of fossil fuels and things like that. Because they're the ones that you'd see, you feel that they're the ones that are being the biggest contributors. Because mm-hmm. you're, you're the sceptics against what's happening up in the Arctic or this climate change, they would say, well, it's happen- happening naturally. Because mm-hmm. what's happening there, you could say, is naturally mm-hmm. to a point. Yeah, I mean, the beautiful thing about our world is that things don't happen in isolation and mm-hmm. that everything is very connected. So atmospheric processes, um, contaminants that are in our atmosphere, they end up in the Arctic. And that's right. the thing. It's <clears throat> this term called Arctic haze that there's this sort of, depending on, you know, formation of wind and how everything ends up in the arctic that right it's not you know the fossil fuels that are burning in kingston don't just stay above kingston right to that i read that there was this i'm not sure if it was a canadian or an american um, government official that said oh we'll just plant more trees that's the solution solution? to uptake more co2 yeah but with vegetation is that they're also limited in nutrients that they will only uptake so much more co2 until they're limited by water nutrients so um it's not it's not a simple solution for sure i like the fact you talked about this arctic haze because then what we are doing down below is like you said moving up which is then creating the warmer climates up there, which is then making the vegetation do more mm-hmm. in certain areas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, good answer. Yeah. Love that one. <laughs> Love that one. Thank you. Okay. So, Christina, thank you for coming on and talking to us about that. Thank you for having me. Um, okay. So, our next lucky student that we're going to interview is Russell Turner, who is doing a Master of Science in Biology under the supervision of Dr. Vicky Friesen. So, welcome also, Russell. Hi, thank, thanks for having me today. Now, just so you know, if Russell sounds a little different, he is on Skype. He Skyped himself in here today. So uh, we really appreciate you coming on, on on the show, Russell. Yeah, no problem. Now, your research 
is the population genomics of an Arctic seabird, the majestic common ida. Is that how you say it? As an ida sea duck? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This majestic common ida sea duck. Can you give me a bit of an overview of what you're looking at there with this particular bird? Yeah, if, you, if anyone doesn't know what a common eider is, they definitely need to Google a picture, an image of it. They're, um, this, the males are this beautiful white and black with a hint of uh, sea green. Oh, nice. But essentially, the eider inhabits uh, Arctic and subarctic ecosystems, and they're heavily hunted by many indigenous and non-indigenous communities. And recently, there's been some population declines, just over 50% for random populations. And so we're trying to use genomic tools and genetic tools to help with their conservation, essentially. And so part of my research is the baseline genetic sequencing of what is already there, like what is the genetic variation between distinct populations. And then once we establish that, then we can start asking more specific questions about their conservation. Can I just jump in quickly there? You said they've been hunted by the indigenous communities. Yeah. Why are they getting hunted? Is it for their eggs or is it for the uh, eider or the, the the feathers and, and things to make warm clothing? Yeah, no, great question. So they, they harvest these birds to eat the meat. They also uh, historically did collect the eggs and they do collect the down exactly for what you said to help make clothing. The eider down is, I think, the warmest or the smallest microfibers for feathers and known as the warmest down from any seabird. So they're definitely collecting for clothing as well. Right. And so in the past then, these populations have not been an issue. There's been plenty around. Yeah, pretty much. And, uh, and so actually, when, when, did, when did the decline start? So the decline really started when Europeans first came to North America. And uh, a recent study that actually just came out of John Small's lab in biology mm -hmm. uh, identified that these population declines were almost immediately triggered with the advance of firearms in North America. Oh, is that right? Like, so as soon as firearms became kind of commonplace, uh, they saw population declines on a couple colonies. Mm-hmm. And in combination with firearms, also with uh, motorboats um, and easily getting around uh, made hunting the, this species a little easier. So it's really the past 200 years then? Yes, yeah, exactly. Improving what we think is civilization doesn't really help us, does it? Yeah, so, not all the time. So, so that's kind of, so the background then is, well, there's two backgrounds I'm thinking then. There's the historical background of the... Uh, the start of European settlement in in the in the north, coming into the north there, but also then um, the advent of having firearms and things that makes it easier to to find these birds. Is that correct? Yeah, you're absolutely right there. And in combination with other human activities in the north, such as increased shipping, oil and gas exploration, and everyone's favorite, uh, climate change. So right. yeah, right. a bunch of human impacts on these organisms. And yeah, we're just trying to help them out using genomic tools. So it's kind of, it's really exciting. It's the first time it's been done on this seabird. So so can I just ask one more question before we get into your actual research? What yeah, do these sure. birds eat? Uh, yeah, so eiders are amazing. They're, they dive to the seabed floor. And they eat mostly like blue mussels uh, or other invertebrates that they can get 
picking off the sea bottom. Right. Um, and they dive down uh, up to about 25, 30 meters, and they'll like pry off the mussels from the seabed floor and then swim back to the surface and consume them on the surface, completely whole. So once again, this potential, if those populations dwindle from, for various reasons, that's once again their food sources being reduced. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Heavily rely on those blue mussel beds to uh, for their diet. Right. Okay. So let's let's get on to your work itself that you're doing because, you know, I like a little bit of a background of why you're actually studying a particular bird. So, yep. so tell me a bit more about how do you use DNA to help conserve birds and, and what does that actually mean? Well, essentially what we do is uh, because these birds are heavily hunted and some populations are declining and some are not declining – we don't know if the hunt is influencing specific colonies or not. Right. So essentially what we're trying to do is, are you familiar with like 23andMe or Ancestry, like human DNA testing? Is that the one that you will see on TV about? Yeah, the, exactly. The Basically, can't find out what, how much of a European or other population you are. Yeah, exactly. So the idea there is that for a human, you spit in a tube. You send your DNA away, someone sequences it, and tells you kind of where roughly in the world your ancestry is from or where in the right. world you come from. Right. And what we're trying to do with the birds is that exact same thing, but okay. just on a North American scale. So we get these hunted birds where we don't know where they came from. We can sequence some of their DNA, and then we can find out, oh, this bird is most likely from northern Nunavut or you know, this bird is from Newfoundland. And then we can try and understand how much of an impact the hunt is having on these birds. Sorry, did you say that you found these birds, but you're not sure where they came from, but they're in a certain area right now? So we know their breeding locations because they kind of disperse to distinct breeding colonies throughout okay. the summer. Right. And in the winter and when they're most heavily hunted, they all come together and form these large flocks on the coastlines. Oh, is that to keep themselves warm and protected? Uh, I think it's just because they know to go where there's ice-free areas with oh. lots of food. Right. Okay. And then so what we're doing is we're just doing the baseline genetic information. So what is currently out there? And then future work will be able to use these hunted samples and identify which colonies or which regions they come from. And how many regions are there that you know of right now for this particular seabird? Uh, well, right now we know that there's four um, subspecies in North America. Mm -hmm. uh, this is based on morphological differences and migration and uh, behavior. And essentially what we're, what we're hoping is that using genomic tools, we'll be able to identify either these four distinct groupings or even further and find distinctiveness within each of those subspecies. Okay. Why do you go to this, this area to do it as opposed to just going to where they normally go for breeding? That's a good question. Because if you uh, know where, where, some of the, where some of the populations are, wouldn't you just go there? Well, yes and no. So... We go to their breeding grounds because we they breed throughout North America. And so the idea is that if they're breeding in the far north, they might have different genetic patterns than the individuals that breed farther south. Okay. 
you wouldn't know that if you just went to their overwintering ground. You wouldn't know which individual is from where. Right. Uh, and so we kind of partition them uh, based on their breeding distribution rather than their winter distribution. Right. All good answers. See, you've been you've been uh, studying up on this, haven't you? You obviously know your bird really, really well. <laughs> so, so when you want to want to take this DNA sequencing, how do you actually catch the birds? I mean, are they flying around or are they in the water? The eiders are because you said they were a duck. Yeah, so they're ducks. So they're mostly flying around their uh, land sea interface so kind of between the ocean and these small islands that they uh, breed on mm -hmm. but what we actually do is we actually set up these large mist nets which is a common method to catch um, like little passerines um, in the mainland right um, but we set these up just kind of outside ponds uh, in the arctic and they kind of fly around the island like scouting out the area like looking for a good place to land right and when they're flying around, they don't actually like see these nets and they're just like five, ten feet above the ground. And they're kind of flying around looking for a place to land. And then they see our nets at the last minute and they slow down and they just like gently like land into the nets. Oh, and then we run out as a as a crew and, and capture them. And uh, then we can take a bunch of scientific samples from them. And then you let them go. And then we let them go. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, are these are these ducks big? Because it sounds like yeah. a bunch of you run and get them. I mean, how big are these things? <laughs> yeah, so these ducks can get up to about six, seven pounds at breeding season. Oh, okay. So they're actually the largest duck in North America. Right. Um, yeah, or actually in the Northern Hemisphere. I, I've been recently corrected, not ah, right. just North America. Yeah. But if you're catching them during breeding season, does that upset their their breeding time at all? I mean... I know if I was getting in in breed sort of in heat, if you know if you know what I mean, and suddenly yeah. someone's starting to try and catch me, that might kind of put off my fertility. Does that do you find that happens at all? Or is that just? Um... Um, I think if we really hit a colony really hard, that could have an impact. But right. we we try and limit it to just certain hours of the day, and not going out and disturbing them at all the times. Uh, and I think that's uh, that's really big a factor there is that we're not always constantly like working the birds. Right. And we very rarely catch the same bird twice. And so that's another benefit is that we're not inducing stress on these birds multiple times. It's just for a very short period of time and kind of once a year if if we're lucky to capture them. If you do capture them, and I know you're doing the DNA sequencing, would you yeah. tag them as well so you can actually follow their flight path of where they go next? Yeah, I wasn't a part of that, um, but I know in previous years on East Bay Island where I where I got to do some field work, they did a, attach like radio transmitters and GPS signals or right. receivers on them, and then they can actually get daily movement patterns of the bird. So. They, I, they catch the bird, they basically put on one of these uh, receiver transmitters, and then they can trace where the bird goes to feed or to stay overnight kind of thing. Uh, right. And it's really, it's really remarkable. But also what we do is we attach these metal bands and these plastic bands to the birds, uh, which hopefully will stay on for the rest of their life. Right. Uh, and they're really lightweight, and we just put them on their, uh, on their legs, essentially. And what this also enables is you to track birds year after year. Right, right. 
So you're able to identify um, some birds that were breeding on the same island, you know, five, ten years prior. And then you can also use this to estimate survival and abundance of the birds as well. Um, and I don't know how long you've been collecting the data, but if you can track where they've been, has there been any reports that they're actually now not going to the same places as they used to? Unfortunately, I don't think they have that information identified. Right. But um, as far as I'm aware, they're still going to the same locations that they kind of have historically gone to. So in terms of, I mean, you've talked about how people have affected the population of right. the um, the eider duck, sea duck. Mm. What What is their natural predator other than man? So that's a great question. So other like owls and other, oh gosh, falcons and hawks are a common predator of common eider. Okay, and they're up there too? But some of those species are up in the Arctic, yes, and some in, in the subarctic. But uh, a kind of a recent observation by many scientists is that because polar bears typically eat uh, seals, but yeah. with less sea ice, uh, they've kind of switched their diet to kind of anything that's in the Arctic. And so now they're actually observing polar bears not just consuming the adult eiders or attempting to catch the adult eiders, uh, but they're actually going onto the colonies and will wipe out an entire colony of all their eggs. Oh, dear. Okay. Yeah. yeah, bears are coming onto the islands now, um, hungry, looking for food, and in, and the eggs offer a little bit of nutrition, mm -hmm. part of their typical diet. But uh, for example, last year on East Bay Island, they don't think a single a single egg probably didn't hatch. Uh, it was wiped out by a, a big group of polar bears. So what's the what's the lifespan of the bird? Um, so the average lifespan, I think, is about 9 to 15 years old. Okay. And, and when do they start breeding? Because I know in some populations they have to wait a few years before they uh, come back. I think they start breeding after about three or four years. Okay. Yeah, the juveniles will kind of follow experienced breeders back and forth during those first two or three years. And then after that, they kind of see how it's done or see what, what needs to be done, and then they, they join in. So how can you sum up what's happening with this with this bird? I mean, we've talked about the human factor. Right. Um, the physical human factor. But what about in terms of what's happening in the seas and things? I mean, you know, once again, you've talked about the, the polar bears who would normally, their food, food supply would be normally the seals. But of course, that's been disrupted as well. Mm -hmm. So what else is happening up there that can have an effect on this bird? Well, uh, an interesting actually study came out uh, just last year um, saying that uh, even though there's all these uh, impacts and natural predators of these eiders, including increased polar bear predation, mm -hmm. but with a warming climate will come, will also have a larger clutch sizes with the, bear, with the birds. Uh, and so they're thinking that um, right now, uh, there's been some forecasting models uh, that have identified that the eiders probably will do okay with this increased polar bear predation right. as right. a warmer climate will probably increase clutch size. So meaning that they'll be able to have more offspring each year and that okay. should counteract one another. Okay. So how many eggs do they normally lay? 
So it kind of varies throughout their range. The farther south that you go, so say like Newfoundland or uh, uh, Nova Scotia area, they have on average from five to six eggs per year. Okay. Um, but the further north you go, say uh, East Bay Island in northern Hudson's Bay, they have on average three or four. Okay. And if you go further north than that, the, the the idea is like two or three. Right. So they in 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 themselves they've learned how to adapt with the different environment, knowing that they can look after ducklings. Yeah, to a degree. Um, yeah. A bit more with more numbers if they're in a warmer climate because there's more potentially more food around for them. Exactly. I think that's the working hypothesis right now. Right, right. As long as it's the right food that's available for them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Russell, this has been absolutely fascinating. And this is just one bird. And I know there's a lot of other birds up there that your labs, um, you know, our biology labs do up in the high north. So thank you very much for coming on today. But were you at the Northern Symposium? I was, yeah. That was a great symposium. What was that last week? Or yes, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what did you think of it? Uh, it was great. It's great to have different departments come together, and uh, we're all interested in the same region of Canada and kind of share our research and our stories um, about our experiences in the north. It, it was really great. Great. And so you had an opportunity, as you mentioned, to speak to other uh, programs as well, which is fascinating. I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I had a poster during the poster session and it was great. I had people that I never talked to or never um, interacted with come up and ask me about what I was doing. It was it was a lot of fun to chat with them. That's fantastic. So, Russell, thank you very much for coming on again. I'm going to sort of switch over now to Branovan to give a bit of a, an update on on what what he thought the Northern Research Symposium, how he thought that went, seeing as he was part of the committee and everything. So, Russell, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking this morning. Excellent. You've got lots to, you've got lots to say, so it's fantastic. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, Branovan, give me a summary of what, how you think it went. Because this is our third one, our third session, mm-hmm. and we've heard some fan- fantastic research. Awesome. So, yeah, the Northern Research Symposium uh, was held on April 17th, uh, 2019, the, for the seventh year, and it went really well. We had great attendance, and uh, it was a great day of talks, posters, uh, but also talking to each other about their research mm-hmm. and some new collaborations too, which was great. So I think it just goes to show that the amount of research that's going on up in the north across various disciplines, and that so many people are interested in you know what can we find out to help protect the future. Mm-hmm, exactly, because Queens has a very dynamic re- northern research community. We have researchers in the departments of biology, geology, health studies, and also uh, geography and planning, and several other departments. Mm-hmm. So it it really shows the diversity in northern research that uh, can be done, and that is being done at Queens. I think the sad part is there's no no limit to how what how much research we can do up there because there's so much we can be doing which is quite sad to think that there's so much research available up there exactly and also i think uh something i took away from this uh specific symposium this year is the landscape is changing in terms of how research is being conducted in northern environments right so it's no longer you go from the south and 
you collect the data and then publish papers and then provide a report to the community, but rather coming up with questions with the community, Great. working with the community as research partners and collaborators, because then there's going to be a lot more applicability to that research immediately. Right, right. So it's really interesting to see how that has changed through time and the community involvement, uh, the importance of recognizing it, community It is super, super important. I mean, the collaborations have to happen for anything to make, to get changed. Absolutely. Um, because it's not just, like you said, just going in, doing a bit of research and coming out. I mean, there's mm -hmm. still people and still wildlife, etc., up there that still need to function. Yeah. We're, we're the people just coming in and going out. Yeah, but then extending that to more collaborative, long-term partnerships long -term. Uh, can be fruitful in terms of the training of graduate students, but also it has long-lasting benefits, hopefully. Right. So, so actually, one more thing. I mean, there was a lot of you that were involved in the Northern Research Symposium. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I mean, what a great committee, both with students and faculty. So how, how did you find working with those people? It was a tremendous opportunity. And for me, it's the fourth time I'm organizing this conference. So every year, a new group of students I work with, and I learned so much uh, from everyone involved. And maybe share a thing or two that I have uh, learned over the past <laughs> few years. Right? I'm sure you have. <laughs> and so I would really like to uh, acknowledge and also give shout outs to the following people, Drs. Laura Thompson and Robert Way, Christina Braybrook, uh, uh, Greg Robson, Dana Stevenson, and Jacqueline Hung for helping organizing this conference this year and being the part of it. It's a real privilege to have worked with all of them this year. But also our funders are, and the tremendous support, uh, financial and in-kind supports that we received from Department of Geography and Planning, Queen's uh, Vice Principal's Research Office, School of Graduate Studies, Principal Student Initiative Fund, Environmental Studies, Department of Biology for providing both financial and in-kind supports. It's mm. truly, truly amazing to do that. Well, it seems like it was a fantastic symposium for everyone, both in learning about the research that's going on up up north yeah. and also the collaborations within our, within our own community here at mm -hmm. Queen's. So um, well done to all of you. Thank you very much, Colette. And also, thank you for hosting us for three weeks and agreeing to do this special Northern Edition in GradChat. I really it, appreciate that. It has actually been my pleasure because I've learned so much. I've, we've had to cram a lot in, but <laughs> but we've learned a lot along the way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which yeah. has been fantastic. So on that note, we are going to have to call it quits. Like, like I said, this is the last uh, series of the Northern Symposium. And I hate to say it, but climate change is making an impact up there. And so this research that's going on is very, very important. So thank you to all our presenters. I wish you all the best of luck with your research moving forward and whatever you do next. But I, we do all appreciate the work that you're doing up there for, for us. So that is it. Don't forget, tomorrow you can download this podcast on either iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and there's another, or Stitcher, that was the other one. Until then, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.
This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by Queen's University's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.